Hello, and welcome to the Agile Embedded Podcast. I'm Jeff Gable. And I'm Luca Njani. And today we're going to be talking about hardware in the loop testing. This is a this is an exciting one. I've been I've been waiting for this episode. Awesome. So maybe you tell us what hardware in the loop testing is in the first place. Sure. So so when you have hardware in the loop testing, you are running your code on the target. Uh, it's your actual application code, and you're using maybe other other hardware that you've set up, other test specific hardware to. Uh, simulate real physical signals that are going on to, into your device. Say you, you know, have some analog inputs where you're measuring, you know, various signals. I don't know, temperature, pressure, anything. Uh, you might be using other microcontrollers, other boards that you've set up to generate signals that then your system under test. Uh, is responding to, is reading and responding to. And so there's there's several different ways to do it. And uh, this is as opposed to, you might, you know, you may hear that and think, well, yeah, how else would you do it? This is as opposed to unit testing, where you're, you're exercising your code, but it's preferably running on your host on your PC. Uh, and you're simply testing, you know, low level functions one at a time. Um, this is running your entire application code, on your system, on the target, and actually going to the trouble of setting up and faking electrical signals. Um, and so it's it obviously requires a much higher investment, uh, but sometimes is worth it. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Exactly. So I think to me, it also implies that um, those kinds of tests are automated. In many cases, because it's quite simply necessary, like, uh, you know, if, if I'm faking CAN bus signals from, from my communication partner or something, I, I need to script that. I can't just, you know, type in the can signals on the fly. Um, and also, of course, because it's, you know, just a good idea. Once you go to the trouble of, of creating such elaborate fake endpoints, you might as well, you know, automate them, right? I, I completely agree. I, I think, yeah, I can't imagine doing this kind of thing, not automating it. I mean, I guess you can, you might do some kind of manual like on a bench like or this. something, mm -hmm. like on a bench, like mm -hmm. during during prototyping and and early stage development when you're trying to just get things working. Uh, but no, what we're we're talking about is automated system level testing, um, you know, in the mid to later stages of development. Mm -hmm. Have Have you actually done that? Like, do you have experience with that? Some I have done it in in limited uh, capacities for medical devices. Uh, I remember seeing a very large uh, uh, hardware in the loop system at uh, early in my career when I was working in the aerospace industry. Um, I think it's more common in the aerospace industry, and so there was a very large uh, lab view based system that would actually, you know, it was generating lots and lots of signals and was very very complex. Uh, and in that particular case, that's one of the things we'll get into. Uh, I don't think it was worth it. I think it's uh, the system itself became so complex that it was that it was just an equal, you know an equal if not larger effort to maintain that hardware in the loop system. And I don't really think we got the value out of it. So hopefully we'll talk about that in terms of you know the the pitfalls that can await you as you go down this path and how you might avoid them. Hmm. What about yourself? Oh, I like. My first job ever out of university was actually in a in a hardware in the loop test lab for helicopter avionics. So we had like racks and racks of uh, flight control computers and uh, and stuff like that. And then of course a bunch of gear, old old um, Sun. What was it? 
Solaris workstations, in fact, that would simulate all of the communication partners. So we'd have the actual like uh, flight control computers and then all of the radios, all of the navigation gear was simulated in C code that we wrote and that interfaced to this flight control computer over over Milbus and and Airink 429. So very, very sort of awesome aerospace specific stuff. And I I I think in that case it was worth it. Right. And and it's interesting. So that actually I, I would kind of describe it as a hybrid approach. So it sounds like your flight computer was like your flight computer yeah. code was mm-hmm. running on was real. It was running on the real flight computer, but the flight computer's interface to the outside world was over a network. Yes, but but that, but that was that like in the real thing. So you know, in a real helicopter, it would be like in in the automotive world, you'd have maybe a CAN bus or something, and we had a mill bus. So that was a coax based, uh, you know, bus system. Sure. And that was just how all of these devices interfaced with one another. Right, right. So I, so actually, I love that example because this is where I think hardware and loop testing uh, can work very well and be worth it Mm -hmm. is when you have, when you have kind of a well-defined interface, like, again, so you have your flight computer software, it's running on the actual flight computer, but the flight computer's view of the outside world is over a network. Yep. Mm-hmm. Network connections are very easy to simulate. <laughs> Fair fit. enough, yeah. Mm-hmm. As opposed to so so in in my Osiris job, which actually was was working on unmanned helicopters, mm-hmm. uh, that exact system where we had a real flight computer running the software, we would actually we actually had those at our desks, like like we I would you know literally we had I don't know six or seven of them floating around the office mm-hmm. and each one of the the engineers who was working on flight software typically had a dedicated one and it was sitting on your desk and it was actually connected you know its its view of the outside world was over ethernet and so we would just connect it to our PCs and be running a simulation of the helicopter on the PC but from the flight computer standpoint it was just as if it was running in the real aircraft um, and so it was hardware in the loop in the sense of just the flight computer, mm-hmm. but it wasn't the rest of the hardware of the aircraft. Um, the, the big complex in the end, not worth it system was actually trying to it had all of the different modules in the helicopter and it was actually trying to fake real raw electrical signals, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, going in. Um, and as you can imagine, that gets extremely complex uh, and in the end, that that did not provide, I think, the value worth worth the investment. Um, but kind of that mid level stage where you where you have some of your code running on target, especially if you have a very clean interface like a network connection, mm-hmm. um, then I think it's really worth it. Interesting. So I guess we should talk about more of the properties of of hardware and the loop testing and how you you know you might approach it differently and the advantages and and certainly also disadvantages right so so maybe i guess the differentiation i'm making is when you have a microcontroller that has maybe a lot of separate outputs inputs and outputs mm-hmm. a lot of gpio pins a lot of a lot of analog inputs that kind of thing that is when it begets more difficult to create the hardware in the loop testing system that drives all of those pins and so that's kind of yeah, one but property. These days, couldn't you just take, I don't know, a Raspberry Pi and, and just sort of 
you know, just connect it to the to the hardware like analog pins and I just throw some voltages at it um you know oh i i guess you can it just at that point so so yes electrically it it may not be that complicated but then you have logic mm-hmm. running on that raspberry pi to make sure all of those signals are driven in a physically realistic way in sync um mm-hmm. so i i would so yeah. instead of one real-time system now you have two right exactly mm-hmm. yeah so i would say that that's one property uh, there's, and so that's going to drive the complexity of your hardware in the loop system that you're setting up, mm-hmm. uh, in terms of the value you get out of it, why you would want to do that. Maybe let's discuss that before we get into whether you should or not. Cause that, mm-hmm. you know, essentially in anything, it's, it's going to be the value you get out of it versus the investment that you put into it. So the complexity of the system you try to set up that drives the investment, mm-hmm. Uh, what drives the value that you get out of it? Well, I think the major value you get out of it is that you are, in fact, testing the real system. You're not just testing a stand-in. You're not, uh, you know, imagining that you're simulating the behavior of your um, of your sensor or something. You are, in fact, you know, stimulating perhaps a raw analog analog pin and you get to see how your real system reacts to that real stimulus so i think it can give you a very high degree of trust in not just the software but the system as a whole that you've created and i suppose this is also why in safety critical industries it's often quite simply mandatory to to have some kind of hardware in the loop testing to really remove this kind of doubt about how well your mocks are, you know, standing in for the real thing. Exactly. Yeah. I, I, you know, I think most of the listeners of this podcast uh, have an appreciation that system level interactions uh, are often just unpredictable. Um, and it's <laughs> uh, especially the more complex your system gets. Uh, uh, if you're, if you're running a real time operating system, you have different threads uh, interacting uh, it becomes harder to reason about, um, and and there are just there are race conditions, there are uh, other other real time bugs. There's interactions with hardware that um, uh, it just makes it it just makes it harder to reason about and harder to be confident uh, that you're not going to have any bugs. And that's really what we're in the end when we when we keep emphasizing quality um, on this podcast. That's really what we're talking about is the confidence that. Uh, that the software is going to behave as expected. And the more, you know, filters you can set up between your development process and your device being in the real world, filters you can set up to catch these bugs, uh, the higher quality your software is going to be. Hmm. But then again, Luca, this is the Agile Embedded Podcast, after all. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, isn't isn't it very contrary to the Agile way of doing things? to spend all this time setting up this very complex hardware in the loop system? Oh, but it's not, Jeff. (laughs) How can you do this to me? Educate me, please. (laughs) (laughs) So I I think there's tremendous value to it. And uh, I would really 
feel a lot better a, about a project where I had at least some, some, you know, very rudimentary sort of hardware in the loop thing because it allows me to try out so many things. Um, it's, it's such a powerful feedback mechanism. And that, of course, makes it very suited to, to Agile because it, you know, not just do I, you know, test my system, I also test my understanding of of let's say the boundaries of the system, do my sensors really behave this way? It also allows me to gain confidence in a lot of the side processes, like how how confident am I that I can flash my system repeatedly, automatedly, stably, that I can really evaluate the data that I receive from it or that it receives, whatever. Um, so I, I think this is a very sort of high volume feedback channel that you really should be using, even if maybe you're, and, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm jumping ahead a little bit here, even if maybe all you do is have a very simple and basic sort of hardware in the loop test, I, I would be perfectly happy, like if you're building, I don't know, a, a robot, let's say, I would be perfectly happy with a hardware in the loop test that proves to me that the robot can move 10, 10 centimeters forward, 10 centimeters back and end up back at the same coordinates. You know, that, you know, just a very trivial test like that would be so much more confidence-inspiring than right, right. Only simulating, and like everything else, you know, in development, it's all about bang for the buck. It's it's all about finding the simplest way to uh, build the most confidence. Um, and I think that was, you know, getting back to uh the particular system that i was talking about when we when we first started this episode this very large complex system that was simulating every possible input on the aircraft you know it became a development effort in and of itself that kind of lost sight of the value that it was providing and i think the people mm -hmm. working on mm -hmm. it just you know essentially lost sight of the big picture um and just focused all this their time on making this thing as high fidelity as possible when a lot of that fidelity was either wasted or just not necessary, not worth the investment. Um, and in the end, we, we barely used it uh, just because it was, it was this big creaky thing that was built up over time, wasn't flexible um, and was very complicated to, uh, to make it work. Um, it just wasn't in the end, it didn't provide any value. And so that's, that's the kind of rabbit hole <laughs> you, you made a note uh, in our in our pre episode here. Rabbit holes for horse sized rabbits. Um, mm -hmm. that, <laughs> exactly, and that was probably exactly what it was, right? Exactly, exactly. I mean, there was there was hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not you know over a million dollars, poured into this thing, and it it just provided very little value. Yeah, it, the million dollars is not the problem. The provides little value is the problem. Sure, absolutely. That's what I'm saying. It, it was it was a yeah, exactly. it was a high mm -hmm. a high cost. That would have been worth it if it were actually, you know, producing value in the end, and and obviously was not. So, yeah. So I I I would be very eager to build some kind of even rudimentary powder in the loop system. You know, make it make it not really real time capable if if that's too much effort. Make it not simulate everything, but only part of your sensor suite or something. If it would otherwise be too complicated but have something that gives you the confidence that you are building a system that can actually correctly interact with the real world. Not just in theory, not just in your mocks in software or something, but you know, have a robot that actually moves back and forth. 
so much better than not having it. Right. Uh, so another way to actually do this, uh, one way that I've seen in a lot of medical device companies, because mm-hmm. medical devices, especially say, uh, like diagnostic machines are a perfect example because they're, they're relatively closed. They don't, as opposed to say surgical tools, which actually need to interact with, you know, real human tissue or, or some simulated hum- human tissue and they're, they're being manipulated by a surgeon. That's <laughs> harder to do this for, but possible. Uh, but a diagnostic machine is, it, it kind of just sits there on a bench and you know, maybe you insert something into it and then it runs a diagnostic and gives you a result. That's much more amenable to automation uh, where you can just have a whole bunch of these machines sitting in a lab, you know, and, and you have to, the instrumentation that you have to add is the ability to script the machine and maybe to turn off a few, you know, uh, monitoring features that might be in production to make sure that they don't reuse the same test over and over. So you might want to, disable that particular feature to allow this to be run over and over and over. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's the sort of thing where you can have a bunch of instruments in a room just running tests over and over and over for days, for weeks. Um, And you can, you know, every time you release, do a new software release, you're flashing it on those machines and you're exercising it for a week continuously. Um, And that's where you can really get a lot of confidence, you know, having a reasonable volume of machines running continuously for a reasonable amount of time is a really great exercise of your system. Um, you know, you'll start to catch those real, those very rare race conditions or real time errors that are lurking in there. Uh, that's where you can start to catch them if you're running in an automated fashion uh, for a long period of time. Exactly. Like, but, hmm. but I will say that, you know, at the same time, you have to do additional uh, investment to instrument your code so that when those errors happen, you actually have a prayer of (laughs) troubleshooting what the cause was. Because you never want to say, oh, it crashed at some point over the week. I have no idea why. Um, Yeah, but it's, you know, as, as sort of disappointing as that outcome would be, at least now you know there's something going on, which is much better than not knowing it. Sure, that's true. Like that's true. you know, when I, when I was at BMW um, doing engine control unit tests, we had we had literal wash baskets full of ECUs for the different engines, um, and every two weeks when they had new firmware iterations come our way, we'd plug them all in and try to flash them in all combinations, just to really prove to ourselves that yes, all of those different firmware data sets still fit in the memory. And sort of as a side effect, we also proved to ourselves that the flashing process was was robust because we did hundreds of flashes a week. Uh, and if we had only done like one or two in the lab or something, and something had been funny, we said, oh, okay, yeah, it was funny. Uh, I'd never thought twice about it. And it would only have surfaced, uh, you know, in the dealerships as they were trying to to upgrade customers' cars or something. Um, and so instead, we we had almost bench tests, essentially, of, of just CECUs, but we also had, we had those awesome, uh, huge racks, like taller than I am, with entire, like, subsystems of the car. Like, I, I remember that um, the ECU would be connected to a, to a real, like, diesel injector. 
And so as it was running through its automated suite of tests, then the injectors would chatter because they were trying to inject. It, it was awesome. But of course, this is exactly where you get the, the horse-sized rabbits, um, you know, with, with the commensurate rabbit holes, because trying to get such a system running stably and reliably it just consumed so much engineering work, even down to stupid stuff like um, we need to make sure that we had the right keys for the for the particular ECUs because all of the safety features were active, you know, the anti anti theft features, so the thing wouldn't turn on if it did didn't detect its actual matching car key uh, and and stuff like that. And it was just it was horrendously brittle, but you know. Of course, since uh, those were manufactured by the millions, it still made sense to go to this effort and and expend, I, I have no idea how much money, but a lot, uh, creating and maintaining such a hardware in the loop system, such an, you know, such an involved system. Right, right. And it's funny, like you were talking about the, <laughs> you, you wisely brought up the point about the rabbit hole because I could hear the glee in your voice. You're like, it was awesome. <laughs> and that's, yeah, but it's shocking. Like this, this effort. I, I know. And, and that's the kind of thing. That's exactly the kind of thing that led to the, the waste of effort in the, uh, in the system that I was talking about is because the engineers working on it were like, this is awesome. And they really, just wanted to work on it for the for the to solve this technical problem and kind of lost sight of the bigger <laughs> picture of whether it was worth it of spending all that time. Um, so, OK, so so we've spent a, a fair amount of time here talking about this now for companies like, you know, anyone who's listening to this, who's, say, working for an automotive company, I, I you know, they're going to spend the, the time setting up these kind of systems Um so I guess I want to help our use our our listeners who are trying to decide, who really have this decision in front of them. Do I invest the time in building this kind of rig? They're probably going to be working at a startup or a, a medium sized company. Um, maybe they only have one product, and so it's really that you know, what can we give them to help them try to make this decision? And essentially, I, I guess my first piece of advice, uh, and, and this is something you alluded to earlier, earlier Luca, um, is to, like everything else, start simple. Uh, just minimize the system as much as you can and uh, don't, <laughs> don't bite off the entire chunk of having to simulate every single input to your system. Really start as simple as possible um, and then start iterating from there. Uh, and and go for the highest value features, the features that you're most worried about. This is just like this is just like investing in unit testing, maybe old legacy code. We've talked about that in the past. If there's if there's something that's a particular operation of your device that's extremely stable, that has maybe been in production for a while, and you don't have any plans to change it, then going back and, and it hasn't failed in the field, it's been very stable, then that's obviously not worth worrying about. Yeah. You're mm -hmm. going to get relatively little. It's not worth worrying about. You're going to get relatively little increased confidence in doing that. So th like, listen to your gut. What things are you worried about? You know, what do you lie awake at night saying, oh God, I hope there's not a bug in that. That's where you need to focus your testing efforts. Exactly. And, and in many cases you can get away with something like really rudimentary. You know, both in terms of your test rig itself um, and in terms 
of the amount of or the number of tests you need to write, maybe all you need is really a, a single kind of smoke test. And say, does this thing really twitch when I want it to? Maybe that's already, you know, that gives you already a lot more confidence because at the end, this is what we're aiming for, isn't it? We're not trying to prove all details of the system. All we need is the right amount of confidence in our product. And, you know, depending on whether this is a product that who, where, where somebody's life depends on it or not, this level of confidence will, of course, be very different. But still, you can, you can build something very simple that still instills a lot of confidence both in your product and in your process, by the way, of, you know, can I reliably build? Can I reliably flash? Can I reliably test? Do I not have funny race conditions lurking somewhere? Right. And in, and in general, like the, the more complex this hardware in the loop test rig needs to be, maybe to, maybe to build confidence in the system, you're, you're saying, I don't have confidence unless I test this very comprehensively. So at this point, you know, I'm faced with this decision as to whether to spend a lot of money on this hardware in the loop test rig. Um, some of the factors that you might weigh in on that are, you know, that high, you know, non-recurring engineering cost, that NRE cost. Um, it may be easier to justify if you can reuse it across different product lines. Um, if, especially if your product is extremely high volume, if you can reuse this test system in a manufacturing setting, just like Luca, you just mentioned a smoke test, like maybe you use it during development, but then you, you reuse a lot of that development effort for this hill system to make a manufacturing test rig to verify your devices as they roll off the manufacturing line. Very good point. Again, yes. The higher volume your device, the more that system becomes valuable. You know, if you're producing 100 instruments a year, maybe that's not worth it. But if you're producing 10,000 instruments a year, then absolutely it might be. Um, you know, obviously, you know, we've touched, both of us have worked in, I work in uh, medical devices. Luca has worked in safety to critical industries in the past. Uh, if you have, you know, if lives are depending on the, on the device that you're making, the standard for quality is that much higher. Uh, and this kind of effort, uh, uh, may very well be justified to achieve that. Yeah, but even, you know, even for a simple consumer product, maybe you can find a way to build a really simple hardware in the loop system. You know, just like I said before, may maybe all it needs is as a Raspberry Pi and a Python script to drive uh, the output pins. And so, you know, maybe you can't really make it real time, but maybe you can find a test case where you can where you don't need those real-time capabilities and you can just sort of at least do something and you can kind of cobble it together in an afternoon. You know, that, that would be awesome. Right. Like, it doesn't need to be perfect. Remember, your goal is not to build a perfect replica of your system or of reality or something. Your goal is to build trust. And of course, in you know the the simplest way you can, because right, let's let's face it, overly complicated systems like the one that you were describing, Jeff, don't instill confidence either. Like if this simulation becomes this, you know, right, big, scary, opaque thing in itself, then all of a sudden, the trust starts to go away. 
Right. Right. Uh, and in and in keeping with, uh, you know, again, back to us being the Agile Embedded podcast and keeping with these Agile principles, the more you can repeat it, the more the more times you can exercise this. Um, and by exercise kind of at, at all different levels, like if, if you're if your hardware in the loop system is brittle so that it can't be updated so that you don't want to update any code for risk of breaking the hardware in the loop system, you've you've built you've worked yourself into a trap, into a, into a cul-de-sac that there's really no good way out of. Um, that's where keeping things simple and flexible and where, where you just, you try it again and again, if it hurts, lean into it and do it more often and it will start to hurt less. You'll, you'll polish over those rough edges in your deployment process in your, uh, in your development process. And, um, things will just get faster and easier over time. Exactly. That's, there's really nothing to add, is there? That's the dream. Yep. And it can be your reality. <laughs> yes. So, which is why I said in the, in the beginning, I, I really want for any kind of hardware project, I want a hardware in the loop test. And it may be really rudimentary. And it may be sort of, you know, this cobbled together, not very impressive thing. But it's so much better than nothing. Right. And it's so much better than, you know, an, a, a much higher fidelity bench test that you only do every other week because it's so much effort and you can't be bothered. I'd much rather you only have a, a pretty unimpressive single test, but you run it 10 times a day. Right. And, and then if you want to, you can still do your bench test every other week. Fine. Nothing wrong with that. In fact, you should do it. But you do have that permanent proof that yes, the system still works in an actual physical way. Have you actually uh, incorporated this into, say, a, a an automated pipeline, where you know at the you know you you do your software builds, you do your static analysis, you do your uh, unit testing, and then in the end, at the end of the pipeline, you actually flash it onto physical devices and run it in an automated way, or is it there's still in your experience, is there is that usually done manually? Uh, yes and no. So, I have worked worked with a system where the the actual like uh, motor drivers and and that sort of thing they had a kind of simulation mode, so we could harness that to have something which was almost a hill test. No machines were actually moving, so it wasn't a it wasn't really a true hill test. It was more like like some kind of a system test or integration test. But it was externally, this simulation mode was externally validated. So we had fairly high trust in it. And and the good thing about it was that we didn't waste precious prototypes because we could do it on a, on a bench. We had a little trolley and, and it just ran its test internally. And what we did for... Um, for a real system was we we had a sort of nightly test where you know at night nobody was using the prototype and we never got as far as actually integrating it into the pipeline that was always the thing we were going to do next and it never happened um that because we needed to be a bit careful if you know somebody was working late we don't kill them or something because those robots were pretty powerful they could crack your skull i think right um so the, the idea was, and, and sort of all of the parts were there, we just didn't wire them up, to have a very simple 
um, physical tests where we would we we wouldn't use external sensors. We said fine, the, the internal you know motion sensors of of the machine should be good enough. Certainly better than nothing. Uh, the idea was to at least do that nightly, like have a nightly run with a nightly build, see if the machine could go like backwards and forwards. Right. And prove to ourselves that, yes, we are still building robots, not just robot-shaped like doorstops. Ha ha ha. Perfect. Perfect. And, and because you did that nightly, um, I imagine there was a very well-oiled process by that point for, you know, taking the latest build, flashing it on there, running it overnight, checking the data in the morning, like those all got ironed out because you exercised that, even though there were manual parts to it, nothing wrong with that. Um, if it's not worth the effort of that last bit of automation, or if there's some reason you can't do it, like you said, for safety reasons or whatever, that's totally fine. As long as it is a process that you repeat a lot in the same way. Um, exactly. If there are a few so manual that, components, that was, who cares? that's mm -hmm. fine. Exactly. And, uh, and that worked really nicely. That was actually driven, that was actually BDD behavior driven de development style test driven by just a Python script because that's how simple we could make it. Right. Um, and it worked beautifully. Perfect. Uh, any more thoughts before we wrap this one up? I think we've, uh, uh, we've covered this topic pretty well. I think we have. So just remember, there is no excuse for not having a hill, even if it's a, you know, pretty unimpressive one, but you should have one. Uh oh, you just uh, you just gave our podcast the explicit. Uh... Can you can you bleep this or something? Yes, I'll bleep it. Out. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do. We'll do. All righty. I think that's a good place to wrap it up. Uh, this has been the Agile Embedded Podcast. I'm Jeff Gable. And I'm Luke and Johnny. And thanks for listening. We will see you next time. See you guys.